Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This is the second of two talks by Adrian Martin on the life of the talented and tormented T.E. Lawrence. In this talk, we hear about Lawrence's life between the end of the First World War and his death. Adrian also offers us an analysis of his character. I ended my talk with Lawrence leaving Damascus and on the day of his departure, he was painted by James McBay. He is looking pretty emaciated and exhausted. He was weighing less than 80 pounds at this time. He left Damascus on the 4th of October. Shortly after this, and this is coming into our geopolitics, a 37-year-old brigadier led the final Turkish resistance on the boundary between Syria and Anatolia. This man was Mustafa Kemal Pasha, Ataturk effectively. More of him later. So TL was physically and emotionally drained, shorn of his delusions and consumed by guilt. He said in the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, I had to join the conspiracy and assure the men of their reward. Better we win and break our word than lose. A very pragmatic statement, but one, his admission that that indeed was the case was to haunt him for the rest of his life. However, exhausted though he was, he was determined to use all his influence to get the Arabs their independence, if at all possible. And it is quite remarkable that on the voyage home, he managed to get Allenby to write to King George V's secretary, requesting an audience with the king, to write to the Foreign Office, telling them he wanted to present Faisal's case over Syria. He was made an, an acting full colonel. On the boat from Port Side, he met Lord Winterton. He wrote to Lord Robert Cecil, an undersecretary at the Foreign Office, and to A.J. Balfour, the Foreign Secretary. He stopped in Rome to talk to Francis Pico, the French part of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And Pico made it very clear that they weren't going to give anything up. Although he was pretty tired after four days in Oxford, he meets Robert Cecil. He then has a meeting with the Adjutant General of the British Army. He goes to the Eastern Committee of the War Cabinet with Lord Curzon. All these meetings go fairly well. The audience appears receptive. His next audience is with King George V, who wishes to make him a KCVO. Lawrence alleges he tells the King's Secretary he wants no honours only to stress the importance of keeping the promises made to King Hussein. At the palace, he is told the king wants to present him with two previous honours, the CB and DSO. Lawrence gives a rifle to the king, which is now at the Imperial War Museum, but he refuses the KCVO, leaving a perplexed, but according to TEL, not offended monarch. 
What actually happened at the meeting is clouded in mystery. One thing to make clear again, with TEL, there are many conflicting stories. However, there is always a grain of truth in every story he tells. But he could prove and embellish stories to suit his cause. He then prepares a paper for the War Cabinet and meets Churchill for the first time. Churchill was to be a admirer for the rest of his life. He writes to King Hussein, telling him of the discussions to be held in Paris, the Versailles Conference, in other words, and he urges Faisal to attend. The Arabs are beginning to suspect that the Marne correspondence in which the British government had promised the Arabs an independent state, the precise definition of which was left deliberately vague, And Hussein is also concerned that another thing is happening, that with the backing of the India office, Ibn Saad is moving to take control of the entire Arabian Peninsula. Then that was indeed the case. And the conflict in British foreign policy were coming home to roost. The French, of course, didn't want Faisal to have anything to do with the Paris conference. Lawrence persuaded the powers that an Arab's presence was essential. This presence was to be backed by Lawrence. In fact, to the fury of the French, Faisal was brought to Marseille in a Royal Naval ship and TEL was on his way to the port. The French then decided that it would be a good idea to keep Faisal away from Paris, so they took him on a round of of sightseeing in France. But Lawrence, in disgust, returns his Légion d'honneur to the French. The French are very keen that the Sykes-Picot agreement is implemented before the Americans, who of course have an agenda of disliking imperialism, arrive on the scene. George Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, then comes to London on a ceremonial visit, allegedly. He loathed Lloyd George, they were both cut from the same cloth, but wanted to make good relations with Lloyd George before the Americans arrived. Asked by Clemenceau what he wants, Lloyd George replies, Mesopotamia and Palestine. Anything else, Clemenceau says. Mosul, said Lloyd George. You shall have it, says Clemenceau. Of course, Mosul is significant from the point of view of oil, the presence of which and the importance of which was well and truly appreciated by now. Clemenceau says he wants all of Syria, including inland areas reserved for an independent Arab state and Lebanon. This deal is done between the two men in less than an hour. Lloyd George knows that there is a lot of support for the Arabs amongst other politicians, so he keeps the deal quiet. Lawrence is then included as part of the British delegation to go to Versailles, but he's also a member of Faisal's staff. So once again, he is serving the same two masters. He is to manage Faisal on behalf of the British and yet try to secure for Faisal what he knew he would not get. He writes hauntingly in the seven pillars of wisdom of the post-war experience shared by many of the younger generation. This was, after all, supposed to be the war to end all wars. I make the point at this stage, I've had to prune Lawrence's literary career, which is a great shame. But what I have done is to include certain 
quotes so you can show what a fine writer he was. So this is what he said about at the end of the war. We lived many lives in those whirling campaigns. Yet when we achieved and the new world dawned, the old men came out and took our victory to remake in the likeness of the former world they knew. Youth could win, but had not learned to keep and was pitifully weak against age. We stammered that we had worked for a new heaven and a new earth, and they thanked us kindly and made their peace. So Lawrence starts writing to the Times. He then meets Weissman, the, the Jewish leader, and tries to get their support. He offers the Jews support, providing they support an Arab state with Damascus as its capital. What he suggests to Weissman is that there should be joint Jewish-Arab control over Palestine with the British as arbiter and guarantor. There will be no limit on Jewish immigration and absolute religious freedom. Essential to the success of this was the promise that there would be massive Jewish finance for the whole region. Unfortunately, the financial support which is expected after the First World War never happened. A lot of poor Jewish people fled to Palestine to escape persecution elsewhere. Now, we've had the, the benefit previously of David's very good talks on the Treaty of Versailles, so I tread with a little bit of caution. In reality, the Arabs did not have much effect on the conference. Lawrence and Faisal created much interest, but they achieved nothing. The Clemenceau-Lloyd George deal struck. The Americans did not object. They were quite happy for the French and the British to carve up the Middle East following the fall of the Ottoman Empire. The Americans also didn't help. They were asked to, to help the Armenians because they were seen to be a problem. They were given the chance of having a mandate for the Armenians. At the Paris conference, Faisal, despite the fact that things were not going well for him, behaved with great dignity. Lawrence was fuming. Harold Nicholson, the gentleman who was married, I use the words in brackets, to Vita Sackville-West of Sissinghurst fame, never liked Lawrence, but he said about Lawrence, he remarked on the lines of resentment hardening round his boyish lips an undergraduate with a chin. In June 1919, the treaty is signed. And I now go off on a slight tangent, a little bit about Lowell Thomas with Allenby in Palestine and Lawrence in Arabia. You will recall that Lawrence had met the American journalist in Jerusalem and later in Aqaba. Just a little bit about that. Here again, whether it's fiction, non-fiction or faction, not, is not quite sure. What happened was that Lowell Thomas, who, who was a bit of a man with an eye on the main chance, uh, talks about seeing Lawrence, a young man as blonde as a Scandinavian, in whose veins flow Viking blood and the cool traditions of fjords sagas. My first thought as I glanced at his face that he might be one of the younger apostles that turned to life. His expression was serene, almost saintly in its selflessness and repose. Lowell Thomas then goes out to see Storrs, who's the British governor there, and asks, 
who is this blue-eyed, fair-haired fellow wandering around the bazaars wearing a curd sword? Stores did not even allow Lawrence to finish his question. He opened the door to an adjoining room where, seated at the same table, was the Bedouin prince, deeply absorbed in a ponderous tome on archaeology. Introducing us, the governor said, I want you to meet Colonel Lawrence, the uncounted king of Arabia. I don't think it was quite as like that, but that is the way that Lowell Thomas embellished the story. In March 1919, Lowell Thomas began his lecture tour in New York, where it attracted enormous audiences, even more were it to attend in the UK. So he turned Lawrence into Lawrence of Arabia. I think he earned about one and a half million. Post Versailles, Lawrence was still in theory involved with the British, but his presence was unwelcome because he was so unhappy with the deal. The situation down in the Hejaz was bad because Ibn Saad was gaining power. And even the British felt that uh, they owed an obligation to Faisal. King Hussein was to be without a kingdom. What happened was, of course, that Ibn Saad defeated one of Hussein's sons. And it's interesting, of course, when they took over, they had no idea that they were sitting on all the gold. And it's interesting to see that only 26 years later, Franklin D. Roosevelt dropped in to pay his respect to Ibn Saad on his way back from Yalta. He realized how significant the oil was. T.L. goes around upsetting everybody, and somewhat peremptorily, he's told his employment is ended. He was persona non grata at that stage to both the French and the English. A place for research is found for him at All Souls, Oxford. I now want to talk a little bit about Oxford and the Peace Conference. When he returned to Oxford, he had another battle to fight, and that was with his mother. He was not in a good state, and doubtless Sarah, who'd recently been widowed, would have placed inordinate emotional demands on him. His mother was a formidable character. Both Nancy Astor and George Bernard Shaw's wife, Charlotte, who were no shrinking violets, confessed they were absolutely terrified of Lawrence's mother. That he was depressed is certain. He would sit for hours in silence, staring into space. And I come back to Lowell Thomas's show. Lawrence could claim, and did claim, that he went along with the show and cooperated because anything which could get the Arabs publicity he thought was good for their cause. But nevertheless, he had a genius for backing into the limelight. There is no doubt that Lawrence, a shy man, longed to be a hero, but having achieved that fame, despised himself for seeking it. He posed for photos in the UK, romantically dressed in Arab costume, for Harold Chase, who was the photographer for Lowell Thomas. Whether it was self-aggrandisement or publicity for the Arabs is a point for debate. He said he hated the show. If that was the case, why did he attend it on six occasions? It was more circus than accurate documentary. However, the royal family attended and politicians, and it was an enormous success. This point about the whole question of fame and whether he 
enjoyed it or despised it is illustrated again. Later, George Bernard Shaw, who became a great personal friend, wrote a play called Too True to Be Good, in which the star was Private Meek, who was clearly identified as Aircraftsman Shaw, which was Lawrence's persona at the time. Lawrence said no way would he attend the performance of the play in Bridlington, yet in the end he went, laughed throughout, and stayed afterwards signing autographs. He's such a contradiction, voiding the fame but secretly relishing it. He starts writing The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, loses the first edition at Reading Station, although some people say that he burned it because he couldn't stand it. Things are not going well in the Middle East. The peace brokered at Versailles is not satisfactory, and something has to be done. So we now move on to the Cairo Peace Conference. Winston Churchill, Gertrude Bell, and T.E. Lawrence, three important characters at the Cairo Peace Conference. He was still trying to get something for the Arabs. He was relentless in writing to newspapers and campaigning amongst influential people. The Foreign Office was in a mess. They were supporting Hussein in the Hejaz, with the India Office supporting Ibn Saud. No less than four government departments were dealing with the Middle East. He campaigned for change in the Foreign Office. He visited Lloyd George and realized that one man should be in charge of the Middle East. The cost of peacemaking was rising. Lloyd George knew who he wanted, and that was Churchill. In turn, Churchill wanted T.E.L. In fact, Lawrence had suggested to Lloyd George that he should appoint Churchill. Lawrence, before accepting a role, speak to Faisal, and in February 1920, he became a civil servant in the colonial office. Gertrude Bell was recruited. What Lawrence did throughout his life was to work in the background through older and more powerful figures, but bending them to his way. He told Churchill to put a native king in Iraq, Faisal, and hand over defence to the RAF rather than the army. In his year at the colonial office, not only did he help create Iraq, but also placed another of Hussein's sons on the throne of Transjordan, which was to come Jordan. He gave Egypt, which was beginning to give trouble, a measure of independence, while the British retaining some control, and that was to last until 1956 and Suez. He failed, however, to sort out the dispute between Ibn Saud and Hussein in the Hejaz. In order to do this, he worked enormously hard going around the Middle East, flying everywhere, trying to get all sides to agree. I think it's true to say that Henry Kissinger is well known for his shuttle diplomacy, but Lawrence certainly used that back in 1921. What he realised was that if you were in a peace negotiations, you had to keep the deal hot and try and get things agreed and moved on to the next stage and the next bit of the agreement. Lawrence was important, uh, but Gertrude Bell was similarly very uh, influential. She had to persuade reluctant Shiites and the Jews of Baghdad to accept a Sunni king. 
Mosul was a great prize slap in the middle of what was Kurdistan. The treatment of the Kurds has never really been satisfactory. Faisal said he would accept the crown of Iraq, providing that something was given for his brother Abdullah in Jordan. The situation in Transjordan was not at all satisfactory. The tribes kept wanting to raid into Syria with where the French were. But Lawrence used his influence to create Transjordan. Abdullah and Lawrence had never got on particularly well. Abdullah had been dismissed by Lawrence as a a leader of the Arab revolt, because he, he realized that Faisal was a much better man to, to lead the revolt. And so he took a bit of convincing to accept what Lawrence was offering him. Churchill's bodyguard describes a scene in Jordan on Lawrence's effect on the crowd. The Arabs were hostile initially. Lawrence was the man, no Pope of Rome had ever more command before his own worshippers. Colonel Lawrence raised his hands slowly, the first and second fingers raised above the other two for silence and for blessing. He could have owned the earth. He did own it. Every man froze in respect in a kind of New Testament adoration of shepherds for a master. He passed through these murderous looking men and they parted way for us without a struggle. Many touched Lawrence as he moved forward among them. Far off drums were beating and a horse neighed. Lawrence was so greatly loved and respected that he could have established his own empire from Alexandretta to the Indus. He knew this too. So he manages to persuade Abdullah to accept Transjordan. And in fact, Transjordan was to become modern day Jordan. And Abdullah turned out to be a pretty good ruler really. The difficulty about Transjordan, and here we got some more geopolitical issues, was that in creating Transjordan, we had effectively given away a third of what was to be the Jewish homeland. Palestine was to remain a British protectorate, but it was much smaller, and that has always been an issue. But nevertheless, at the end of 1921, he returned to Britain, having helped to create two Arab states imperfect though they were. Britain's position in the Middle East was secure. It's interesting to note that Lawrence was only 33 then, and it's amazing the influence he managed to exercise over people. However, not used was the map he had prepared in 1918 with his plan for the Middle East. The map, in contrast to what was agreed, respected the geographical, tribal, religious, and racial realities in the Middle East. It was admittedly an Anglo-centric view with the French claims ignored, but it made a genuine attempt to sort out the Kurdish problem and try and find a home for the Armenians. Nobody doubts the mess that was created, but I make two points. First, the Arab revolt was started by leaders. It was never a people's revolt. Secondly, as we look at the situation now, and we've no reason to be proud about anything, I wonder whether if the Arabs had been given a state, the religious differences as well as the tribal difficulties would have made the success of that doubtful. It's something we can debate. 
we come out of it all pretty badly, but there we are. Now, I'm afraid I have had to prune heavily Lawrence's literary career, because this is a topic worthy of a whole talk. I'm going to quickly run through his literary career, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, subtitles A Triumph, which I've quoted from. The original subscriber's edition was, in effect, a, a work of art, and he never sought to make any money out of his publications. He gave royalties from books to the Royal Air Force Benevolent Fund. Another book he wrote was The Mint, A Tale of His Life as a Recruit in the RAF. His translation from the Greek of the Odyssey is still in print. And he translated The Forest Giant from French. His letters are amazing. They are almost a, a work of literature in themselves. The letters to the, the great and the good who were his friends. And now I want to move on to Lawrence's self-imposed exile, 1922 to 1935. When he left the colonial office after the Cairo Peace Conference, the world was probably his oyster. He could have accepted some role. It was suggested that he'd been offered the governorship of Egypt, but this is possibly another T.E. Lawrence story without much truth in it. Nevertheless, he was deeply scarred what he still saw as his betrayal of the Arabs. In August 1922, he joins the RAF as a recruit under the name of John Hume Ross. After initial period Uxbridge, he is transferred to just down the road from us to Farnborough, where he starts a photographic course. Joining the RAF was, he had to go through a recruitment process where the recruiting officer was W.E. Johns. He rumbled Lawrence and rejected him. He, he, he sussed out that this bloke was a complete phony. And then in the end, he was just had to be told that there was no way they could turn this bloke down. They got to let him in. So he goes off to Farnborough. He starts a photographic course. The bloke running the course says, who is this chap? Because he ought to be running the course. He knows far more about photography <laughs> than I do. He's very puzzled. One officer asked Lawrence, tell me, why did you join the RAF? And Lawrence replies, because I had a mental breakdown, sir. He does not think this is at all funny and puts Lawrence on a charge for being insubordinate. Anyway, his time at Farnborough came to an abrupt end because foolishly, and this is typical of Lawrence, he told Lord Beaverbrook, the press baron, that he was incognito in the RAF in Farnborough. A couple of weeks later, when the Sunday Express had an article about it all and the press was outside the, the RAF at, at Farnborough. Uh, Lawrence, incidentally, and uh, if anyone wants to go and pay a, a, a trip there, uh, he went fled from Farnborough to the French and Ponds Hotel. Following his leaving the RAF, which was by far his favourite force, he joined the Tank Corps in March 1923 at Bovington. Here he, he settled into the life in the tank corps. He discovers Clouds Hill and starts the cottage he was subsequently to own and starts to make a bit of a life off camp there and spends his time getting to know the other recruits. The people in the army at that stage were a lot of pretty damaged men as he was. He sought relief by going round and visiting the people he got to know 
there's a story of when he went to see Thomas Hardy's wife. She was there and giving entertaining for tea the mayor of Dorchester. Lawrence is dressed in, in his private's kit and the, the mayor's wife says to uh, Mrs. Hardy, I'd never met a private. I, I don't know what to say to him. Now she says that in French, uh, thinking that Hardy's wife would understand French. She didn't have a clue. And Lawrence, in perfect French, told her that Mrs. Hardy didn't speak French. These are the sort of things he enjoyed doing. He also, another little story, and I want to make this a bit of fun. He had a very pompous officer who he was appointed Batman to. And uh, he was told, oh, sort out, unpack my case, will you? So Lawrence unpacks all his possessions and sorts everything out. And the chap says to him at the end, everything all right? And, he's, and Lawrence says to him, oh, yes, sir, everything was fine, but I could only find one razor, sir. And, and the chap says, what do you mean? He said, oh, I, in my experience, most gentlemen use a different razor for every day of the week. He loved taking the mickey out of, of pompous people. He craves a return to the RAF, and eventually he rejoins at Uxbridge in 1925. In order to get him off the scene, they send him out to India. Unfortunately, that doesn't say secret for very long. And he's alleged that he's in India, or in fact, press alleged that he's already left India and has gone off and hiding in the mountains of Afghanistan with a beleaguered king. This brings about his return somewhat suddenly to the United Kingdom. Lawrence returns, the press spot him getting off the boat. There's a picture taken of that. He doesn't help his cause for privacy by attending the House of Commons dressed in a uniform. Trenchard, who's in charge of the RAF, and of course Trenchard was in on the whole thing and had to try and deal with this whole problem of keeping this wretched man quiet said to Lawrence, why must you be more of a damn nuisance than you need to be? However, they came up with a solution, and it was a good solution, which was to send him to RAF Catterwater uh, near Plymouth. When he was at Hendon, he had met the commander of Catterwater, Wing Commander Sidney Smith, and his wife Claire, more of her later on, and they, they got on extremely well. Here Lawrence was tucked away, basically doing what he wanted, and he got involved in the Snyder Trophy, which was to do with airspeed, and he helped organise that. Uh, Mitchell, the designer of the Spitfire, was responsible for the plane which won the Snyder Trophy. Even on this occasion, he upset. Lord Thompson was sort of very important, the person in charge of the uh, things, is meant to be dealing with everybody. He was a Fabian. But Lawrence upset him greatly because the Italian air minister who knew Lawrence rushed up to him and had a lengthy conversation with Lawrence, really upsetting Lord Thompson, who was supposed to be a Fabian and a socialist, he said, who is this young man, this private, talking to the foreign air minister? Well, he wasn't much of a socialist if that's what he thought. However, his main work, which he should be remembered for at RAF Catterwater, was in connection with designing RAF fast motorboats and rescue boats. Sydney Smith family were given the Biscuit, a fast motorboat, and it was in a slightly bad state of repair, and Lawrence helped restore it. He had a good life in Plymouth. 
he got on extremely well with the Sydney Smiths. They were keen on music and they treated him as an, an equal. What had happened was that there'd been an accident with a seaplane and there were fatalities because of a delay of the rescue boat going out there. And this profoundly affected Lawrence. And he began to work on redesigning the, the hulls and the engines to make rescue boats far more quickly. He does this with great success at various locations and ends up at Bridlington in Yorkshire. And he leaves Bridlington, the RAF, in February 1935 on his bicycle because he decided, as one does in February, that it's a good idea to cycle down to Dorset from Yorkshire. As he leaves Bridlington, he writes to a friend, my losing the RAF numbs me so that I haven't much feeling to spare for the while. In fact, I find myself wishing all the time that my own curtain would fall. It seems as if I had finished now. And I'm just going to read something else he wrote. At present, the feeling is mere bewilderment. I imagine leaves must feel like this after they have fallen from their trees and until they die. Let's hope this will not be my continuing state. So he's pretty depressed when he returns to Clouds Hill. His journey there is bedeviled by the press and influential people have to intervene to get the press away from him. He starts to contemplate life post the RAF. He receives a letter from Henry Williamson, the author of Tarka the Otter. He sends a telegram asking him to lunch. On the way back from arranging the telegram home, he swerves to avoid bicycles, lands on his heads, and five days later, he dies of pneumonia. Even in death, there is controversy. Henry Williamson was a member of the British Fascist Party, and it suggested that the idea was that TEL was to lead the party. I think that's a pretty nonsensical claim. And incidentally, there is shortly to be released a film called Lawrence After Arabia, which puts forward the premise that it wasn't an accident at all, but it was an assassination done by the British Secret Service because they were fed up with Lawrence and he was a pain in their backsides. I don't think that's the case. And I want to try and assess Lawrence's importance in the battle for the Middle East. And the trouble with the film and Lowell Thomas is that it makes it look as though Lawrence was the only person involved in the Arab revolt. He described it as a sideshow of a sideshow. If you want to get a good picture of TL's part in the whole war, read Neil Faulkner's excellent book. The defeat of the Turks was the result of much fighting by what became Allenby's army, which was strong. India, France and Australia provided troops and the Australian General Chauvel was a great leader. The British Navy provided support. At the Battle of Yembo, they fightened off the Turks at a time when Faisal's forces were in trouble. The Navy also had mastery of the Red Sea and thus kept the troops supplied. There was the Imperial Camel Corps and what was to become the RAF. There were many other British officers fighting in the desert apart from Lawrence. Their importance to the revolt should not be underestimated. 
Lawrence was a trusted leader. As liaison officer for the Arabs, he could not be better. His knowledge and understanding of the Arabs made him the perfect man to work with Faisal. He was tough and a fearless guerrilla leader with a knowledge of both the terrain and military tactics. What the Arabs did was to keep 300,000 Turkish troops tied down defending Medina and the 900 miles of the Hejaz railway. This obviously made Allenby's job simpler. The Turks were supported by German and Austrian troops, all kept away from the Western Front. Following Richard Aldington, that book alleged that, and people alleged that Lawrence's role and it was being vastly exaggerated by him, as had the importance of the Arab revolt. It was claimed that far fewer Turkish troops were fighting. However, since then, the release of further public records refutes this, and Neil Faulkner, who describes himself as a Marxist historian, set out in the Great Arab Revolt project between 2006 and 2014, to examine the architectural evidence about the Hejaz Railway and some of the sites where battles were fought. He had no agenda, and I believe he approached the project objectively. His conclusion was that Lawrence's account of the battles and the fortifications was accurate and was not exaggerated. He ascertained that the Turks did indeed have a sizable army to defend the railway the army fluctuated in size. I mean, sometimes it was only down to 500 people, but they kept an awful lot of Turks at bay. General Allenby, who Lawrence worked with so well, was a tough traditional soldier respected by his men. They were poles apart, but Allenby was shrewd enough to see the value of Lawrence and support him. The conflict was a war of two fronts at the end, with Allenby fighting west of Jordan with a conventional mechanised army dependent on industrial supply. TEL was fighting to the east of the river with a tribal insurgency of largely camel-mounted guerrillas. Allenby, writing post-retirement, was full of praise. He described him as the mainstream of the Arab movement, his ideals, independence, and intellectual gifts had made him a brilliant war leader. Lawrence was under my command, but after acquainting him with my strategical plan, I gave him a free hand. His cooperation was marked by the utmost loyalty, and I never had anything but praise for his work, which indeed was invaluable throughout the campaign. Lawrence did not invent guerrilla warfare. It had been used to great effect by the Boers, but he was a great exponent of it. The 27 articles which I mentioned last time were studied by leaders diverse as Ho Chi Minh, the American troops in Afghanistan, Bin Laden and the Desert Rats. The Americans, having read about it all and how one should go and get to know the people and live with the people, decided the answer to the problem was to send in drones. Partially, and I have to admit to this, I end with a statement made by an Austrian soldier who had the misfortune to be on three trains attacked by Lawrence. He wrote in 1934, what Lawrence did in Arabia, far from any culture and the simplest comfort, in the middle of the most inhospitable desert, in heat and thirst, and that he was able to do it all, is hard to understand, even for us who live down there. Lawrence was everywhere and nowhere. That last sentence 
seems to me to sum up the essence of the successful guerrilla fighter. I now want to talk about T.E. Lawrence, his personal relationships and his sexual proclivities. Ladies, if you wish to do so, please leave the room. There's no doubt that he had a charismatic personality. Despite being shy, he had so many relationships among politicians, authors, and artists. This charisma transcended language. He could not have been the leader he was in the Arab revolt with personal magnetism. He had an ability to inspire devotion and loyalty amongst people, even though they saw his faults. Secret Sassoon said he had a power over life, and John Buchan said that he would have followed him over a cliff, though he wasn't a hero worshipper. I want to, to mention a few people who had played a part in his life. Well, I start with his mother, this terrifying lady. Her guilt about her situation, she found us in her religious fervor, the beatings and the clash of wills, and how she admitted to part of his nervousness. Some claim Lawrence is an interesting neurotic with the profound Oedipal problems. The next one is Janet Laurie. Janet Laurie was a childhood friend of the family. She'd lost her mother and spent an awful lot of time in the Lawrence household in Oxford. She was very tomboyish and very popular. One evening after supper, Lawrence was left alone with her in the dining room. He locked the door and proposed to her. Her response was simply to roar with laughter. I'm sure that did his morale a lot of good. In fact, she wanted to marry his brother, Will. Mrs. Lawrence did not approve of her. I think she was a bit too much of a tomboy. Later on, Lawrence, discovering that she was in grave financial difficulties after a marriage which wasn't very successful, because remember, his brother, Will, died. He gave her quite a considerable amount of money to help her. I think he was very fond of her. I now want to mention someone called Vivian Richards, was a fellow undergraduate at Jesus College, a couple of years older than T.E.L., he clearly had designs on Lawrence, but he was uninterested. This is what Richards wrote. It was love at first sight. He had neither flesh or carnality of any kind. He just did not understand. He received my affection, my sacrifice, eventually my total subservience as though it was his due. He never gave me the slightest sign that he understood my motives or fathomed my desires. Richards later wrote, I now realize he was sexless. At least he was unaware of sex. Later, they attempted to cooperate on a printing venture to produce books that would be works of art in themselves. Richards was later to become a teacher and left his last employment at one school under slightly mysterious circumstances. I think that is best left unsaid. We move on to Salim Ahmed or Dahum, which means darkness. S.A. or Salim Ahmed. No one knows really if that's his real name. Lawrence met Dahum at Karkamish, where he was working on the dig. He was a good humoured, self-possessed and intelligent 14-year-old, and also very good-looking. Lawrence got on with him extremely well and took Dahum and another boy, 
Sheikh Hamoudi to visit Oxford one summer. They were absolutely entranced by Oxford. There are stories that Dahoom was fascinated by the tiles in the men's lavatory and ran his hands over them. But he created quite a stir by bringing them back to Oxford. Lawrence photographed him. They exchanged clothes. Lawrence wrote, I liked a particular Arab very much. And I thought that freedom for the race would be an acceptable present. Was this his real motivation for the whole war? The opening, the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, is dedicated to S.A. It's quite a long poem, which he sent to Robert Graves. Whether this S.A. was indeed Salim Ahmed or not, it said, To S.A., I loved you, so I drew these tides of men into my hands and wrote my will across the sky in stars. This is a, a controversial point, and I was hoping that this September I would have learned more about this. I mentioned Claire Sidney Smith earlier on, who was the lady in the boat, the wife of his commanding officer at RAF Catamole. She was young, beautiful, elegant, gay, and like saucy hats. He spent a lot of time with the family at their home listening to music. He was always very fond of the daughter. She noticed how much he disliked shaking hands with anyone, hiding his hands behind his back. She wrote, he lived a monastic life within the world of ordinary beings. Thus, he was able to have a deep friendship for a woman, myself, based on the closest ties of sympathy and understanding, but containing none of the elements normally associated with love. He seemed, she thought, to have completely separated himself from the physical side of life and indeed to be hardly even aware of it. I now move on to John Jock Bruce. I mentioned earlier how Lawrence's mother used to beat him and how at Durea he was beaten. And as he was beaten, he felt a delicious warmth, probably sexual. At Bovington, he'd met Jock Bruce, a tough 19-year-old. In 1968, Bruce, he claimed to have had a relationship with Lawrence between 1922 and 1935. His account is undoubtedly fanciful at, at times, but it, it appears he beat T. Lawrence on a number of occasions. John Mack, in his book, The Prince of Our Disorder, says that the beatings may have been a form of penance for de Rea. Arnold, his brother, in an interview for the Monitor programme for BBC years ago, said he hated the thought of sex. In medieval literature, there are many tales of heroes quelling thoughts of sex by beatings, and that he had lost his bodily integrity at Caderea. Arnold then said in this interview that he wanted success desperately, but ended up dreading having obtained it. Well, I think that's probably enough of sadomasochism. I now move on to Charlotte Shaw. Now, the marriage was founded on a strange premise. There was to be no sex. This was her condition. She abhorred the idea of sex and childbirth. They became very close friends. Shaw described Lawrence, I quote, as a grown-up boy. There is some truth in that as he loved his motorbikes, practical jokes, and avoided adult entanglements of love, marriage, and domesticity. Shaw, interestingly, saw the connection between Lawrence and St. John, 
and he sent Lawrence a draft of St. Joan for comment. Michael Holroyd, who wrote Shaw's biography, wrote, with their missionary zeal to mold the world to their personal convictions, Joan and Lawrence were two small homeless figures elected by the zeitgeist and picked out by the spotlight of history. I think that's quite a good way of describing the two. Shaw saw the connection and after meeting Lawrence, gave him the key to creating Joan, who was at once saintly and proud, modern and medieval, as well as a deeply androgynous figure. The last comment was made by Michael Corder in his book on Lawrence. He corresponded time and time again with Charlotte Shaw. I think she was a sympathetic ear. I think she was really the surrogate mother to him. And she also gave him a great deal of emotional support. Michael Corder again said, it was as close to a love affair as either of them, two people who serious avoided even the mildest terms of adjournment in their 13 years of correspondence could ever approach. A quote from Charlotte Shaw, and this is very true, something extraordinary always happens to that man. And she said this later, I think he would have grinned at the idea of anyone mothering him, but in the end he was dreadfully lonely, the strangest contact of my life. I want to try and have a little bit of a summary of his relationships. It would require an eminent psychiatrist to sum up all this, but nevertheless, I will try. I think he was so scarred by his mother and his parents' situation that he had decided to avoid sex at all costs. He saw where it had got them. The beatings are a sign of a deeply disturbed man. I have little doubt where his proclivities lay, Dahum and his sympathetic writing of relationships among young Arabs in the Seven Pillars make that pretty clear. However, there is no evidence of TEL having consummated any such relationship. What is clear is his utter abhorrence of any physical contact, even shaking hands. It is a sad part of the tale. What is less is his great capacity for close friendship across all walks of life, both among the high and the mighty and his friends he had in the forces. He had great charm and charisma. He could, however, use that charm and charisma to manipulate people to get his way. In conclusion, how does one judge this complex man? Thousands of writers have done so, and will continue to do so. Wars do not have the consequences intended or foreseen. The war in the Middle East changed everything and nothing. The Turks fled to be replaced by the British and the French. Our so-called ally Hussein sailed away to be replaced by Ibn Saad. Neil Faulkner, whose views I suspect, concludes his book by saying that the Arab revolt had been a mirage in the desert. The Arabs reached Damascus as the hard guns of the British Empire. The Arab was of false hope and history turned back on itself. In a richly ironic twist, it was the Turks who produced a real national movement. The Turks had ejected the Greeks and the British and established a strong modernizing reform movement. In contrast, the Arabs were under colonial rule. The new geopolitical order established 
between 1916 and 1921 is substantially changed today. Quote Neil Faulkner again, in consequence, the region has been and remains today riven by sectarianism, violence, intractable conflict and untold suffering. Another point. Interestingly, James Barr ends his book on the Sykes-Picot Agreement with this comment about our negotiations to join the common market in 1958. He said the refusal lay in de Gaulle's mind. In the hot, noisy cities of Beirut and Damascus, the general experience of machinations in both places profoundly shaped his reluctance to allow his wartime rivals to join the European club. This is about the Sykes-Picot Agreement. It is a tale from which neither country emerges with much credit. You remember France was in a terrible state and de Gaulle, as leader of the Free French, felt that we should have done much to support the French in Syria and Damascus. Lawrence, I suspect, would admit to his part in all this. It is perhaps an example of the dangers of meddling in a culture that is not your own. Is it conceit? bordering on arrogance, playing politics with other people's lives and destiny. He was, however, no Cecil Rhodes or Clive of India seeking wealth. If our politicians could see what he saw and tried to put into effect his plans, we would not be in the mess today. He genuinely sought, and I quote here, a first brown dominion, not the last brown colony. D.L. may have sought to impose his personal dream and ambition on the Arabs, or to put it as eloquently as he did, to write his will across the skies and build a new independent Arab nation. General Allenby, in contrast, describes him after his death as a character difficult to know and one who had his private reasons for all he did. Despite this, he was carrying out the wishes of the McMahon correspondents. In other words, our agreement with the Arabs to give them an independent state. I hope I've been true to my brief and shown both the talent and torment in the man. Despite my fascination and admiration for him, I hope there's been some balance and analysis. And what would Lawrence have made of our talks? If I had him on oath in the witness box and asked him first that question about our talks today, he would have said, a ridiculous fuss. My second question, would you rather be remembered or totally forgotten? His answer would, I think, be after a pause, remembered. And finally, did you contribute to all the hype? The reply, because he was a man with a profound sense of right and wrong, sadly, I did. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.